Thank you for joining us for the 2022 NACDD President's Challenge podcast series. I'm your host, Christy Peer, NACDD Board President from the Maryland Department of Health. In this series, we are talking with leaders around the country about resilience and well-being in our communities, our teams at work, and ourselves to identify ways to apply lessons learned in public health. We are framing the conversations in four categories or buckets based on the socio-ecological model, societal, community, interpersonal, and individual. Resilience is defined broadly, typically dependent on the context. Anne Maston's definition of resilience frames the goals, the capacity of a system to adapt successfully to disturbances that threaten the viability, function, or development of the system. So let's get started. Well, welcome. Today we're talking to Holly Nickel and Julia Kaplan from the Public Health Institute. We're going to start off with some general questions. We want to talk today about health and all policies. If you can tell us a little bit about health and all policies and how does it support well-being in all communities? Sure. This is Julia, and I'll kick us off with this. I'll start by saying that our team, State of Equity at the Public Health Institute, has been staffing health and all policies work and supporting this work with California state government since 2010. And we have a simple definition of health and all policies, simple, maybe not so simple, but that it's a collaborative approach to advancing health equity and improving the health of all people by transforming government so that government focuses on human impacts and its decision-making across sectors and policy areas. And we actually like to call this health and equity in all policies these days. I would love to tell just a short story to kind of illustrate the connection between this approach and community as you asked about. So this story is called the upstream parable and it's often told in public health. And so let's imagine that you and I are on a walk by a river and it's a beautiful day. And as we're walking, we notice that there's a child drowning in the water. Being who we are, we jump in and we pull them to safety. But as soon as we get that child to shore, we see another child in the water struggling. We jump in and pull them out and another and another. We're exhausted. And then fortunately, some people come along and we shout to them to join us and a bunch of them come in and join us. But a couple of them start walking away and we call after them and we're outraged that these people are not helping us. And we say, where are you going? What do you think you're doing that's so important while these children are drowning? And they respond, well, we're going up the river to see why these children are falling in in the first place. And this is typically where the story ends when I've heard it. And it illustrates this problem. It's a chronic problem in public health. Do we focus our scarce resources on people who are ill and suffering, or do we spend them trying to uncover the root causes of why people are facing these crises and health harms in their life? I've added a second part to the story. In my version, we're not faced with that crisis of decision between working downstream and upstream. We have enough resources for both. And so we're continuing to help the children who are drowning in the water and getting them out to safety. But we can also send two amazing teams of people up the river to try to understand what's going on. And maybe, uh, given our audience today, these two teams are made up of chronic disease directors. 
And these two teams each takes a different side of the river. And on one side, the team finds this great situation where children are playing by the river. They've got swim lessons. They've got lifeguards. They've got all kinds of organized and supervised activities. The park area is well equipped. They've got railings and safety equipment and they're well nourished. They've had access to good groceries in their neighborhood. They get to eat healthy food. Their kids make good wages. They can afford to live there. Things look pretty good and we're not really seeing big problems. But on the other side, the team finds a very different situation. They also find kids playing by the river, but there's no park programs. There's no staff there. It's a slippery slope to the water. There's no railings. The kids have never had swim lessons. They've never had access to it. The swimming pools in their neighborhoods are closed. Their parents are working double shifts. They're barely making money to get by. Some of their parents have been incarcerated or killed because of unjust and unequal policing practices. And these are the kids that are falling in. And so not surprisingly, our team start to ask questions. And they come to understand that due to racism and other forms of injustice, the two sides of the river have had very different experiences in terms of resources, opportunities, investments, and support from the government. So there's a lot of points to this story, including that historically government has protected and promoted the well-being of certain groups and has really harmed other groups. But also, if we want to tackle these problems, we have to understand them at their roots. And then the third piece is really about collaboration and where health and equity and all policies comes in, that government decisions should center on the well-being of humans. And we need to radically shift government operations to focus on collaboration between policy areas. If we want to support access to fresh and healthy produce, we need collaboration between agriculture and schools and health. If we want people to have good affordable housing and not get exposed to harmful pollutants, we need collaboration between transportation, air quality and housing and so on. And all of this is what we're talking about when we say health and equity in all policies. Thank you, Julia. That was very illustrative of the burdens and the barriers we see in our society. It would be really interesting to talk a little bit more about the work you're doing with the government entities, the government agencies. And if you can talk a little bit more about the health and all policies, the health and equity in all policies and how that's evolved over the years to focus more on racial equity and also talk a little bit more about that shift and how you brought along those government agencies with that shift. Sure. I'll be happy to talk about kind of the evolution of our health and equity in all policies work and how over time racial equity has become really central in our work. And then we'll get to hear more from Holly Nichol on this podcast about what that really looks like in practice and in action. If we go back to the beginning of our health and all policies work 12 years ago, equity was kind of a lightning rod concept. And even people think of California as a very progressive place. And even in our work in California, there was a lot of 
organizing and just a lot of work that had to be done to really get equity centralized in health and all policies work. And I want to especially give credit and really honor the work of folks in local communities and community-based organizations who were really and continued to hold government accountable and really kind of put forward that you couldn't promote healthy communities without promoting equitable communities. So we began convening state government agencies with the creation of a health and all policies task force that to this day brings together over 20 different departments and agencies. So transportation, fire and forestry, housing, parks, social services. It's almost like you name it, they're probably there. It's a really kind of eclectic and interesting group of entities. And what has been fascinating about this work is that when we look at the work to advance healthy and equitable communities, there are touch points with every single aspect of government and no single government entity can really make the changes that we need without collaborating with the others. And of course, our government structures are set up in ways that create a lot of separation between government entities. And so the kind of collaboration that is needed is also very difficult. So health and all policies really is about convening a collaborative space for cross-pollination of ideas and figuring out how to tackle not only from a programmatic standpoint, what are the relationships between these policy areas, but also from a, a standpoint of looking at the structures of government, how do we even collaborate when our budgets and so many different pieces of our operations prevent us from doing that? And I want to come back to your question of about uh, as we delved into understanding health equity and health inequities, it became very clear very quickly that racism was really at the root of the health inequities that we were looking at. And it's important to remember that racial discrimination was legal for a long time in this country. And even though it's no longer legal, there's long-term impacts of those historical policies. And many government policies continue to benefit white people while causing disproportionate harm to people of color. The upstream parable story kind of illustrated the differences in experiences and access to resources and opportunities that communities have. But in addition, the experience of just simply, it's not simple, but the experience of being targeted by racism itself has very significant health and physiological impacts. And so we in our health and all policies work really benefited from the work of some key luminaries in public health on these issues, including Dr. Kamara Jones, who's now at Emory University, Dr. David Williams at Harvard, Dr. Amani Allen at UC Berkeley. And through kind of reading their work and bringing that into health and all policies, it became clear to us that we couldn't do health and all policies without really being health and equity in all policies and really working to understand both the impacts and the role of racism in government and taking steps to address that. And so I won't say more because Holly is the lead on that body of work for us and an expert on what that looks like and, and how this work is playing out. Great. Holly, did you want to add anything? I have another follow-up question from that, and maybe you can respond to that. So the question I have is then the structural inequities and racism within the departments and, and agencies and bringing them together to really help to understand and accept 
some of that structural inequity and racism that's actually within their agency or department, having them also commit to making changes. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think in public health and where we sit, we do see that we're in silos. We talk about silos a lot. And with different departments, we also tend to use different language and sometimes even communicating and coming together to address something so big can sometimes be a challenge. That was a lot for you to respond to, Holly. We can break that down a little bit if you want. Yeah, sure. No problem. And thanks for having us again. This is Holly. So we're talking about institutional racism, right? And public health and and the systems and institutions in which we sit and how to really serve our communities in a way that perhaps we want to serve them, but maybe have fallen short in serving them and, and thinking about what actually is the root cause of these inequities. And as Julia mentioned before, in our health and all policies work, we really came to understand that those inequities were driven by institutional racism, also other forms of racism as well. But since we work with government and in government, looking at the institutional level is certainly important. And you've probably noticed over these past few years that racism has been declared a public health crisis. And even the NACDD CEO has like made a statement about racism as a public health crisis. And I thought it was a really strong statement, actually. He denounced violence against Black Americans and racism as a public health crisis. And he included a call to action of the organization, of the members, and of public health practitioners, saying that public health must be anti-racist. And that's a really strong statement. And that's sort of what we are really trying to support government in understanding, that institutional racism and all forms of racism are, it's really urgent. It's mission critical (laughs) to achieve what we want to achieve in government, right? And for many of us, In public health, we weren't really taught anything about oppression, power, power exchange, power sharing, what that looks like in public health and how public health and other institutions, government institutions have created and maintained institutional racism. Also, what we can do concretely to repair some of that damage that has been done through institutional policies and practices in government. And I just want to say, you know, looking at any measure of success in health or life, there are deep and persistent differences in outcomes based on race. But if we really understand root causes, we know that actually what we're talking is about what Black, Indigenous and people of color experience and how that impacts then health outcomes and life outcomes, which, you know, the root cause is is racism. And so in public health, we need to be really strategic and specific about what the root cause is, because if we're not specific about what the root cause is, there's really no way to understand the nuances of what the strategies could look like to undo um, and to repair and to not cause further harm to communities. So the Capital Collaborative on Race and Equity, which I co-lead with a couple other people, Leanne Dillon and Giovanna Burrell from the State of Equity team that we're on at the Public Health Institute. It's a network of about 40 state government entities, boards, offices, departments, agencies that come together to learn about and 
plan around how to advance racial equity in government. And this sort of movement or network of organizations in the Capital Collaborative on Race and Equity was created to coordinate across government, advancing racial equity together. What does the whole of government approach look like? What do we need to do as a whole of government working together, not in silos to advance racial equity? So what I want to say also about that is there are some features of CORE that haven't been really implemented before at the state level. A lot of this work around advancing racial equity in governments has been really like worked on like over 15 years. So CORE really is implementing something that local and regional governments have done before. They've been implementing it for about 15 years, maybe even more. They're really leading the way in public health and government to advance racial equity. And so we are modeled after Race Forward's Government Alliance on Race and Equity to normalize, operationalize, and organize around advancing racial equity in government. So there are some key features of CORE that help us to coordinate government entities in California state government. One of those things is training cohorts. We hold cohorts to learn about implement racial equity and ultimately what the product is, is to draft racial equity action plans. And so each of the teams or units of government that we worked with, about 40 of them, have drafted or will be drafting racial equity action plans. We also provide staff that implements technical assistance, coaching, and support towards systems change to advance racial equity. And we provide cross-agency networking and enterprise-wide executive engagement as well. And so our capacity building isn't only training, that is one very important aspect of our coordination. But if we think of ourselves as public health practitioners in a way that is like organizing, organizing and capacity building of our peers, that's really helpful in moving transformation forward. Training is one piece and the other pieces are organizing and operationalizing for government. What were the other parts of your question, Christy, that I can speak to? Well, you've opened up some other questions that are also aligned with what I was thinking of earlier. The concept of having all of the agencies working on this at the same time. And that goes back to really Julia's story, right? Because one thing is not going to solve this institutionalized inequities and racism. Going to the next question is, how can other states use this core framework to then support their cross-sector partnerships and to bring them to the table to integrate equity and anti-racism into their mission. In addition to our California-specific work in government, we partner again really closely with Race Forward and their Government Alliance on Race and Equity to convene state-level racial equity champions across the nation as well. 
the field of racial equity within local and federal government is really accelerating rapidly. And so strengthening the role of state government has been really imperative for a national racial equity strategy. We have been working to identify structures, practices, and networks needed to respond to these attacks which the attacks are on racial equity, especially at the state level, from attacks on like school teaching, the history and current context of racism, to attacks on addressing structural racism in state government. So we're really working to pull state champions together to think about and deepen the way that we're thinking about racial equity and then coordinating across states. And if anyone, any listeners are interested in this work, if you're currently a state racial equity champion, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at ccore at phi.org and one of us will connect you into that network. And it's really important to get connected into networks because this work can be very, very isolating. Usually there's maybe one or two people, sometimes a small staff team working on racial equity in the government or in certain departments or, you know, any type of organization. So it becomes really isolating and staff is really taxed, right? Racial equity is something that hasn't been achieved before. So it's like really creative work (laughs) to think about transformation of government, what it could look like, operationalizing it, concretizing strategies. And so networks are really needed in this work so we can lean on each other, learn from one another, celebrate one another's successes, think about the challenges each of us are experiencing and how can we band together to then uh, move racial equity forward. That is all the time we have for today's episode. Thank you to Holly and Julia from the Public Health Institute for joining us and sharing your passion and work on advancing healthy and equitable communities. We will continue our conversation with Holly and Julian part two to discuss more on what a community is and how addressing racial equity supports resilience in our communities. We really appreciate all our listeners who take time out of their day to listen to this NACDD's Challenge podcast. See you next time.